everybody, and welcome to WChat. Today, we are very excited to have two amazing guests, Dr. Diana Wu and Dr. Lamercy St. Hilaire. Dr. St. Hilaire and Wu have developed an interactive curriculum for healthcare providers that focuses on the exploration of unconscious bias how it relates to the practice of medicine, and how it can lead to healthcare disparities. This is followed by encouraging participants to address acts of bias and discrimination through an active process of allyship. So today, we are going to talk about their curriculum and as well as some practical tips for managing unconscious bias and how you can also become an ally when you are interacting with women. Hi, everyone. Stephanie here. So I just want to start by giving our listeners a little bit of background about the people we are speaking with today. So we would like you both to just talk a little bit about yourself. So just telling our listeners about your background, your education and training, and your current practice setting, like where and the types of patients you serve. So I will start with Dr. Wu. Hi, uh, thank you so much for having us on. Um, So I am a family medicine physician, and I work at a community health clinic in Oakland. Um, My patients at that clinic are primarily individuals who are low income. They are not native English speakers, and um, they may or may not have housing. I also travel out of state to work at a family planning clinic, and those patients are from all walks of life. Great. Thank you, Dr. Ruth. So what about you, Dr. St. Hilaire? Thank you for having us. I am currently an assistant professor at UCSF in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, where I'm working on this curriculum with Diana. And another thing that I do is I uh, provide primary care at a clinic, Tom Waddell Clinic, in the Tenderloin area of San Francisco, where I provide care for mostly adults with a large variation of chronic comorbidities, including trauma, mental illness, chronic diseases, substance use disorders, and people who are currently homeless. Diana and I went to residency together at UCSF in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, and that's where we met. We kind of leaned on each other during the hard and hard times of residency where there are a lot of difficult patient interactions, difficult interactions with our attendings, which are our supervisors and our faculty, and kind of leaned on each other when we had these situations where we either were confused, outraged, or didn't feel empowered to stand up. And this is kind of stemming where our work stemmed from. Stephanie, this sounds an awful lot like us, doesn't it? I was just going to say that. Yeah. A lot of venting and support. Yes. So you two probably have a very special bond like Stephanie and I. Okay, so let's jump right in. So like we said, today we're going to discuss unconscious bias and allyship. And this might be something that many of you are wondering, what does this have to do with everyday practice and or communication? And this is something that Stephanie and I both find is actually the crux of communication and can really impact every type of interaction that you have with patients, whether it is sexual reproductive health related or otherwise. So let's go ahead and kind of just start breaking this kind of conceptually dense topic down. So Dr. Wu and Lamercy, if you could just start out by discussing what is unconscious or implicit bias? So unconscious bias, um, we use the definition from Dr. Fisk and Taylor and Dr. Valian. So the definition is social stereotypes about certain groups of people that individuals form outside their own conscious awareness. Now, the important part about this is 
that all of us hold unconscious beliefs about various social and identity groups. In fact, unconscious biases are far more prevalent than conscious prejudice. They are often incompatible with our conscious values. And the most difficult part is that by way of them being unconscious, we don't know we have them. And we don't know that we carry these biases in the back of our brain. So how do we, just like you said, how do we go about evaluating our own biases if they are, by definition, unconscious? And we think the, f- the very first step is just to be okay with the fact that you have unconscious bias. This isn't something that is makes you a good person or a bad person or makes you at fault or innocent. It's just something that we're all exposed to via media, education, our family backgrounds, the way we were raised what we were taught in school and just our day-to-day activities. So in our curriculum, we try to normalize that with our participants and let them know that this is just something that happens automatically as you're growing up. And so we like to use an activity from a TED Talk, actually, called Immaculate Perception by UCLA law professor Jerry Kang. And in the classroom, of course, we can't do this via podcast, but we have images on the screen of different words in different color fonts. And we use an activity in which they're timed, and we try to see how fast you can separate the word from the color. And this activity gets harder and harder as we start pairing words with different color fonts. So of course, when you see the word blue with a blue font or the word yellow with a yellow font, you can shout those out pretty quickly. But when the words are jumbled up or you see the color blue with the word green, all of a sudden it's harder for you to separate these things. So we use this phenomenon of automatic processing to show that this is just the way your brain has been automatically organized to help you get through the world. So what you realize is that these biases come into play when you're forced to separate two things that were so closely aligned in your mind for years and years, like the color blue and the letters B, L, U, and E. And of course, when you're put against a time restriction, when there's distractions, when you're scared, when you're burned out, which definitely happens in the healthcare field, it's really hard to separate two things that you closely had aligned in your brain. And it's hard not to rely on your biases to go on your day-to-day activities. Can you give us some examples of maybe an unconscious bias that a provider might hold or how they could become aware of their bias? So an unconscious bias that, so there was a study by Dr. Dellendorf in 2010 And in her study, she showed that low-income Black and Latina women were more likely to have an IUD recommended to them compared to low-income white women. So the interpretation made was that there was likely bias in how healthcare providers and healthcare professionals recommend uh, methods of contraception to different populations. And this is absolutely concerning because we know that U.S. healthcare has a very deep history in coercing women of color especially, but also poor white women regarding their reproduction, whether that means forced sterilization or whether that means coercion of using a IUD, an intrauterine device, or a long-acting reversible contraception. You might have hit on this already, but 
one of our questions is related to race and ethnicity and sort of how, what do you think providers need to know about the historical context of of some of these issues and how that may impact implicit bias, specifically speaking to sexual and reproductive health? I mean, it, it really depends on how far back you want to go, because as we do more and more research for this curriculum, we're realizing that just having a strong historical background and understanding just the history of women of color in this country. And I think now that race is becoming more and more in the forefront in our political arena, it's definitely important to start talking about how our history of trauma, especially when it comes to African-American and indigenous and other women of color in this country, and just the way that they were treated starting from genocide and enslavement all the way to forced sterilization, as Diana was talking about. And then today, in our attempts to make it right, also taking away women's autonomy and kind of limiting their options for their own reproductive. So I just wanted to add to what Dr. St. Hilaire said. And we have to think about even with the medical training that we receive, the history of medical training. So the, the father of OB and gynecology is known to have done experiments on enslaved black women who did not have a choice in being part of these experiments. And he did these experiments without any pain control. He also did the same procedures on white women, but he provided them with pain control. So just like Dr. St. Hilaire said, we need to think about like how far do you want to go in time because this is absolutely part of our medical training history and it absolutely informs up to today how we are being trained and how we are being acculturated into medicine. Even since that time, since the father of modern gynecology was doing these surgeries, procedures, and experiments on enslaved black women without anesthesia, we continue to see how medicine has been used to further institutional policies and structural oppression. So, for example, we see quite commonly in the past hundred years when Uh, Women who are considered feeble-minded, women of color, and poor women were forced to be sterilized against their will. And fast forward to the past couple decades, we still see that happening, actually. The last documented case of forced sterilization occurred as recent as 2010 in a California jail. And we also see that transitioning to coercion of taking contraception, whether that be in the form of an IUD, the intrauterine device, or the Nexplanon. And even as recent as this summer in 2017, uh, a Tennessee judge was taking 30 days off of jail time for inmates who agreed to have a Nexplanon inserted or inmates who agreed to have a vasectomy. And that was fought by the ACLU, but by the time that they were able to stop this from happening, Quite a number, I think, in the teens of inmates had already had nexplanons and vasectomies. So when we're talking about poor women or poor women of color, we hear the same story over and over that these women don't often have, they don't often actually have a real choice. So if you give them the choice between 
getting a Nexplanon inserted and you give them the choice of having 30 days off their, their jail sentence to be at home with their family, to not have to think about childcare. That's not a real choice. And that to us is considered coercion. So speaking a little bit more about coercion, I was just wondering, you know, those are some pretty obvious examples of coercion. And I know some in the literature has been discussed about sort of everyday providers sort of coercing patients into the long-acting reversible contraception. Can you talk more about what that looks like, coercion in that sense? Yeah, so we're trained in medical school and in residency, and as we continue medical education, that informed consent means giving our patients all of the options, telling them the risks and benefits of each, telling them what they can choose between and what can what can be the risk if they choose neither. And of course, when you have a 15-minute visit with a patient and there are over 10 different options to choose from, that conversation almost needs to be shortened in order to fit that visit. And usually what we do as providers because we care for our patients and we want the best for them, we want to give them the options that give them the, the most bang for their buck, as, as you would say. And so the AAP in 2014 said that LARC methods should be considered first-line contraceptive choices for adolescents specifically. So throughout my training, I was always told if a teenager or an adolescent is sexually active, you want to give them a LARC, a long-acting reversible contraception, because it has the highest rate of success, and it's something that's reversible. And so why go through the, mess, the the options of withdrawal? Why go through the options of abstinence when you know they're having sex? Why go through the options of a pill when you know what's best for them, quote unquote? And so in kind of going down a more narrow al- algorithm as you're giving your patients the choices that you think are best for them, your biases can come into play and can affect what you're choosing, what you're choosing are the best for this patient versus what you're choosing is the best for that patient. And um, so that's where biases can come into play and almost have a negative effect and affect their autonomy because they aren't given the full menu of options. They're only given what's thought is best for them. And as Dr. Wu said, like, especially with women of color and poor women, we just see them as we have negative stereotypes in our mind that they're very sexually active, that they need the best control, that they're more likely to get pregnant and have multiple pregnancies, multiple back-to-back pregnancies. So all of these biases are coming into play. And in addition to this recommendation made by the AAP in 2014 is definitely telling us, yes, we're doing a good thing as providers by pushing LARCs on adolescents. If we could take just almost one more step back and, you know, when you talk about the judge with the incarcerated women or poor women, what is the bias that is driving the choice or the idea of pushing for sterilization or pushing LARCs? Like, Maybe can you unpack some of what that bias might be? And again, I think you started talking about it just at the end of what you were saying. So if we look, we could look back into times of slavery, but we could also, we don't have to go that far back. We could go back a couple decades, a couple years. The idea of women of color having an issue with quote unquote hyper fertility or having a, another 
term in quotations like that has been used before to describe women of color is being hyper breeders. Even the concept promoted during the 1980s of a welfare queen, someone who was having children for the purpose of getting welfare, which was debunked multiple times, those stereotypes and those biases can dig in so deeply into not just physicians, not just healthcare professionals, but to everyone. And I know that I was exposed to these biases and stereotypes growing up. And now for me, as a healthcare provider, if I were someone who never interacted with poor women or never interacted with women of color, I would have no other exposure to debunk this stereotype or this bias in my mind. And so as a doctor, when I walk into a room and I'm working with these same demographics, we know that as doctors that we always, most of us have an opinion going into the room of what someone should be doing. And there are very nuanced ways that we recommend one thing over another. So for example, uh, when I'm describing different contraceptions, I could just ignore condoms. I could ignore withdrawal. I could ignore abstinence. I could also ignore the pills and ignore the NuvaRing. And what I could do is go straight to the IUD and straight to the Nexlanon when I'm recommending a method to a woman. And so, and honestly, that is what I was taught in medical school and in the beginning of residency. I had the benefit, and we both had the benefit of working with a number of uh, women-centered doctors who taught that out of me. And so now I go into the room and I start out by saying, like, what do you know about contraception? Do you know what you like already? Tell me why you like, or, or what have you used in the past? What have you liked about the methods in the past? And when I use open-ended questions, it takes more time, but I do get more information and I do have a better idea of where the woman is starting from instead of me going into the room and starting from my own biases and my own opinions about, okay, let's just start with the next one. Let's start, start, let's just start with the lark or let's just start with the tubal ligation, depending on my biases towards a certain patient. Yeah. I was just trying to unpack that a little bit just to make it more obvious of what biases are potentially driving the decisions that are being made. And my kind of counter question to that is, can unconscious bias exist on the level of the patient? That is me coming to you. You know, is there some bias I may have that could affect how I interact with you? I think so. And I, I think that biases don't live in a vacuum too. Just like we talked about with the immaculate perception TED Talk where they're doing the the color and word matching. Our biases are interwoven, you know, together based on our life experience, our education, media, our training, etc. And usually our biases are so interwoven that we can't really separate multiple things out. And time can limit that too. If you only have one minute to read someone's chart, you're not going to get their full history. You're not going to get their full social history, let alone their values, their judgments, their histories of trauma with the medical system, things that Dr. Wu was talking about. You need a deeper conversation to have. And a lot of times these biases fill in blanks, as to say, in that you see a young woman of color who may be 
who may be from a low SES background, then you're assuming you're making a lot of assumptions about that patient. You're probably assuming that they don't have the same level of education. So their health literacy, you're assuming, is a lot lower. So when when it comes to giving informed consent, there might be limitations and different ways that you present information. You may make assumptions on their ability to care for a child, and you may, may make an assumption that they don't want to have children at this time or that they can't afford child care or they don't have the community or, you know, the the support needed to raise a child. You may assume that if they have children, that their outcomes are going to be poor. So you see how one bias based on just the color of their skin or their age or their socioeconomic background can affect what you think about their values, about what their education level is, about what their intentions are for this doctor's visit. You may think, oh, this person definitely wants a lark because they don't want to get pregnant right now because of X, Y, and Z. And so these assumptions can turn into a interwoven web of of assumptions that you have to break apart even more, which takes even more time and effort and communication with your patient. Well, and I know for some women in some of the literature I've read, too, is it talks about how, you know, when you have this group of, of women or people that have been so disenfranchised by past bad research practices, it garners this mistrust of the medical system. And mm-hmm. so you have this mistrust, you know, if, if for for example, you're an African-American woman seeing a white doctor. And we, Stephanie mm-hmm. and I have experienced with talking with women is even women who see male doctors and you know, they're kind of being some bias that even a a male doctor just doesn't get it or having some discomfort there. So that's kind of also what I was trying to see if you experience this or have something you could say to about that. Yeah, so I think that because of these past histories of trauma that Dr. St. Hilaire was referring to, I do think that a lot of women, patients in general, may come into the medical system having, I'm trying to say like fears that are valid, like basically valid fears. So to speak on what you've brought up, a lot of women and patients in general who have been recipients of trauma from the medical system or have maybe not been treated as well as they would like to in the medical system or felt like they were treated really unfairly, they do come in with fears that are valid that this is going to happen again. And the well-known histories of injustices towards poor communities of color, for, for example, the most common one cited is the Tuskegee experiments, that really infiltrates communities and they have a good reason to be fearful of their experience with a physician. They come from a culture where the doctor is right and they aren't supposed to say anything. They may just agree to everything I say. And sometimes if you really want to to be a proponent of women-centered health, it is very important to unpack that a little bit further and dig in a little bit deeper to what the patient, what actually makes sense for the patient. Other patients, they might be very distrustful of anything I say or do. And it's important to also be able to unpack that in the exam room in a way that is respectful. And those are hard things to do when you're under a lot of time stress, when you're busy from having a busy clinic day. Those are difficult things to do. 
Yeah, just to piggyback a little bit on the mistrust, like I feel like I've heard a lot of that as an explanation for health for health disparities. And a lot of times when we talk about health disparities, we talk about it from the from a structural perspective or a patient perspective in which we say, oh, well, patients don't have access to, you know, the same kind of, of medicine and healthcare and options that some groups do. And that's why there's healthcare disparities. And then people kind of look at social determinants of health and say, well, look at their neighborhoods, look at their schools, look at their, you know, lack of economic opportunities. And they see that as another example for health disparities. But Rarely do we actually look at the healthcare disparities and say, yes, there's a mistrust there. Yes, there's a history of trauma. But how do we as providers also participate in that? Because if we focus on the mistrust, then it's almost like victim blaming in which we are not looking to ourselves. And when I say ourselves, I mean as healthcare providers, how do we participate in that? And how are our biases playing playing in? And are we making assumptions about trust versus mistrust and what their intentions and their hopes and aspirations with this visit is? And making sure that we don't just stop short of the, yes, certain people don't trust the healthcare system and actually look at the historical and the current events that actually validate that mistrust, as Dr. Wu was saying. And I think one really good resource is Killing the Black Body by Dorothy E. Roberts. And there was a lot of things that I, as a Black woman, didn't even know about our history and learning about things like the Mississippi appendectomy, where Black women thought that they were getting minor procedures and ended up getting hysterectomies. And so this was happening during the 1920s and 1930s. So this is just real things that were happening to our patients and our patients' parents. So these stories are real in their in their lives. They either experience it themselves or they heard it from their parents and grandparents. And so we have to be aware that that trust comes from somewhere and rebuilding that trust has to start with us as healthcare providers. Yeah, those are really important topics. And I think that really leads into, I know we talked a lot about implicit bias and how that affects trust and then also informed decision-making, specifically around contraception. And then more recently, and maybe this book that you were talking about, Dr. St. Hilaire, gets into this, but more recently, there's been a lot in the media. I think the LA Times just posted an article last week about maternal mortality among African-American women and the role that implicit bias can play in that. In what ways do you two find that implicit bias could be affecting maternal mortality rates among African-American women? I don't know about the article that you're talking about or the research, but I don't have the research to cite, but there has been research in the past that basically equated across all demographics, including education. So whether they're a college level um, or above and their income and things like that, which as I was speaking to the interwoven web of different things we assume about black women. So even when you equate it across the board for education, for income and things like that, African-American women still had worse maternal outcomes than their white counterparts. And so you have to start to think like, what is going on here? And I think in the past, we've leaned on genetics and we, you know, we're taught that there must, there must be some kind of genetic or biological thing going on. But now that we now that we can say that race is just a social construct, we have to see how race as a socialized construct has affected 
people's lives for generations and generations that are leading to this continued poor maternal outcome in college-educated, well-to-do economic women who are still having poor outcomes when it comes to maternal health. And I think one big thing that Dr. Wu and I talk about is intersectionality, which is a concept that recognizes that multiple oppressions are not each experienced separately, but rather as a single synthesized experience. And Kimberly Crenshaw really talked about this in the 1980s when she talked about how Black women have this unique experience of both racism and misogyny. And they can't walk life as, oh, I'm a woman one day and I'm a Black woman another day. And a lot of times, Dr. Wu and I, in our vignettes, in our cases that we present, we include characters that have multiple facets of identity to show that you're not just one individual with one specific identity that fits in a perfect box. And when you have different identities that make you oppressed or marginalized in different ways, then those effects are cumulative when you put it together in a way that are not when you're separating them. So Black women have to deal with both being women in a sexist society and being Black in a racist society. And of course, their health is affected by that. Is it okay if I um, jump back a little bit to experience of Black women? Yeah. Yes, of course. In the hospital. So I just also want to piggyback off of what Dr. St. Hilaire was bringing up because We've all heard stories, and one story that stuck out to me was a black woman who ended up in the ER was going into preterm labor and delivered very unexpectedly, very precipitously. And the first thought on multiple people's minds was, oh, was she using drugs? I mean, that we know that that is a possible cause of preterm labor. However, she, the patient was unconscious. She didn't have her records with her. It turned out that she was someone who did not use drugs, who was someone who um, was just traveling in the area, was very well educated, of high income, and the immediate assumption was that, oh, she must have been using drugs, so we need to make sure we get her urine and check to see if she had any drugs on board. And we also, we know that studies show that our urine toxicologies are performed on women of color at 10 times the rate of white women, even though there are the same rates of drug use in both communities. So that's just one example of an experience of a black woman in healthcare. And I think that there's multiple anecdotes I can use from my training just to show that the patient-provider relationship, There is, it's not just a trust that the patients need to have of us. We also need to learn to trust patients. We need to learn how to trust women of color because when we don't trust them, we question their story, we question their intentions, and it's almost taught into us or trained into us to always be thinking that there must be something happening in the background that we don't get. This person must be trying to trick me in some way. That type of bias is why black women are asked to provide urine samples for um, urine toxicologies. Yeah, I think Dr. Wu makes a good point. And that's what we try to do in our curriculum is kind of like change the paradigm of thinking and move it away from this victim blaming, you know, criminal, you know, all those negative stereotypes that you give and, and try to 
take a more humanistic and compassionate approach to looking at our patients, especially when you're in training hospitals are usually hospitals in low income areas. So you tend to see a lot of negative examples of biases playing out in which we know from research that negative that that things that support our stereotypes we tend to remember and those things that go against our stereotype it's harder for us to keep in that google cloud of knowledge and associations that we're making and so when we're constantly in situations where we're only seeing patients who really have fallen through the cracks of our healthcare system and of course, don't have trust in us in our system. And then we kind of perpetuate that cycle of mistrust through the traumatization of our patients. Then these negative stereotypes continue to be reinforced year after year in our training. And then we go out as, you know, when we practice medicine in the community and we wonder where these biases are coming from. And a lot of times it's nothing written in a textbook or on a slideshow or on an evidence-based, you know, peer-reviewed article. It's something that happened just in our day-to-day experiences and our training that kind of reinforce whatever fears or biases or prejudices or stereotypes we have against a group of people. I guess my question for this then is, and we'll kind of segue a little bit, when you we talk about this bias, maybe there's no great way for us to know all the ways in which we have unconscious bias. But if there are some, you know, do you have any ways that maybe doctors can assess their unconscious bias? Or do you have some techniques that can almost in a way minimize your unconscious bias? So kind of this, if you come in the room and you start doing this, this is kind of a a nice way to eliminate the role that unconscious bias may have. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first way that if if someone wanted to start out with just evaluating their unconscious bias, a way that we ask all our workshop participants to use is the implicit association test that is on the harvard.edu website. I don't think that this is the only way that someone can evaluate their unconscious biases, but I think this is a start because one of the most important parts is to acknowledge that we all have unconscious biases, not just quote unquote bad people. Everybody has unconscious biases. So if we could start out with that as a foundation and agree that that is true, you can, then someone can go into a room knowing that their biases might always be playing a part in the back of their mind. And there actually is evidence suggesting that bias literacy really does allow people to help combat their biases. Another thing that is really important is really being in touch with your emotions and where your stress level is because as Dr. St. Hilaire talked about earlier, we know that stress in multiple forms, whether that be hunger or sleep deprivation or time stress or just the stress of our daily work lives, that type of stress really leads to the biases coming out. So if I can really evaluate that, hey, I'm hungry right now. Hey, I'm really tired. I can acknowledge to myself that this is a moment when I'm going to be most vulnerable to bias. So that's another way that we think that you can really work on extinguishing bias. And um, a third way 
is I think that communication skills is so paramount because if we all stay our, in our own bubbles and we don't communicate with others and we don't value the life experiences and the backgrounds of other people that may not be similar to myself, we never get to know those people and have an opportunity to extinguish our biases about their demographic. And so if someone isn't interested, if someone is, you know, just not at, at, as skilled with communication, other ways they can do that is watching movies, making sure that they read books about people from diff different demographics. And that can really help contribute to reframing or at least debunking a bias that someone already has. And so that's a lot of the background work, but I do think that that really contributes to how someone acts in a exam room when they see a patient for the first time. I think that's interesting, the idea of stress exacerbating bias, and it totally makes sense. Yeah, because that's when our reptile brain kind of takes over. You either get in that fight or flight or freeze situation. And, you know, your frontal cortex isn't saying like, hey, maybe you shouldn't be scared of this person because they look a certain way or they remind you of someone that you had before. You're in that fight or flight reptilian brain and, and you don't have the wherewithal to tell yourself to stop and pause and not make these assumptions or not make these discriminatory actions. And a lot of times it's based on sometimes biases are positive biases too. And so we just talk about first when we bring up the implicit association test with our, with our participants and in our curriculum, it's not the results that matter because a lot of times, you know, you'll hear medical students or healthcare providers who, when we're in these group discussions, they bring up the fact that they failed the test or quote unquote, they did bad on the test. And I think what Dr. Wu and I try to do is take the focus less on the results of the tests and more so on the experience taking the the test, the process of choosing which categories, because if you go to the website um, for the implicit association test, you can pick from the multitude of options that you have on the implicit association test. And, and we ask everyone to pick something from a category that they identify in and, and one test from a category that they don't. And so there's many different categories. There's a race one, there's an age one, there's a sexual identity one, and there's even one on gender and career. And we really hear a lot of people struggling with this test, especially women who are in the healthcare field and who are, you know, breaking through their various glass ceilings and realizing that when they take this test, they still associate women with home and family and men with work or the office. And if you look back in the results, because over 10 million people have taken these implicit association tests since 1998, and they've you know, are able to look at the results in general and realizing that women actually associate female with work and male, sorry, female with home and male with work more so than men do. And so we really talk about the fact that even if you are part of that marginalized group, you are not immune to it and you are actually at risk of internalizing it even more. And so we talk, we want people to actually sit in that discomfort, to sit in their results, to sit in the hesitation for taking certain tests, or to look at which ones they're comfortable with the results and okay with, you know, the outcomes of the test and realize like, 
ask themselves, what kind of life experience do you think led you to this? Why were you resistant to the results? Why were you okay with certain results? And so more so that process of introspection is really important than the actual results themselves. And we'll be sure to include the link so that listeners that are interested in this test, they can find that on our website so that they too can take these tests, especially I I like, you know, your idea, you know, just kind of the reflection of sitting in that discomfort and reflecting on, you know, why you think you responded a certain way. And so moving forward from, you know, having this comfort, then what are some like practical things that providers can do? Do you have some tips? I know that you talked about, you know, that you had preceptors that taught it out of you. How did they do that? What can people do? My preceptors who taught it out of me, they really presented the data to me that we, for example, uh, using the long-acting reversible contraception case, that we are essentially encouraging and and recommending long-acting reversible contraception to poor women of color more often than poor white women. Now, why is that? Uh, for someone who is very concerned with fairness and justice in medicine, that's something that I questioned and I needed to know why on earth is that something that we would do. And so if that's something that I disagree with, that's something that I need to work hard on not perpetuating that practice in my own. And I think that there are ways that these practices are systematized within a clinic. So I've worked in clinics before where if a woman wants to remove her long-acting reversible contraception or if she is concerned about it, we put up barriers for her to have it removed. Now, every woman should have a right to have a device that's inserted in them to be taken out when she when they ask for it. I think it is very important to evaluate the reasoning and make sure to debunk any myths that a patient has regarding the long-acting reversible contraception, especially if that is the reason they want it out. At the same time, we need to remind ourselves to trust women and allow them to make their own decisions for themselves. So is there are there systems level reasons that we are perpetuating biases question mark are there ways that i am perpetuating biases by recommending for or against a certain method and is there a way that we can provide just and fair care to all of our patients whatever background they come from and i think it's something that should be on the forefront of everyone's mind if they do care about justice in uh, medicine And I think we both, Dr. Diana Liu and I, really were drawn to the residency program that we ended up attending and and, and got a specific, unique experience because diversity and social justice were two very important things in their mission. So I think another aspect is what is the culture of your medical or healthcare training and what is the culture of the current place that you practice medicine in? And is that a space that allows for this difficult conversation and that a a space that actually supports this, not only the education you need for all of the historical implications, but then the time, space, and resources that you need for that introspection and that work of looking at ourselves as healthcare providers. One thing 
Dr. Wu and I use is this article by Arao and Clemens from Safe Spaces to Brave Spaces, a new way to frame dialogue around diversity and social justice. And because our program automatically gives you reproductive training in abortion care, and it's an opt-out program, one of the most important, I think, sessions that we had was a values-based session where we sat down as a group, you know, with our attendings and preceptors, and we had that real brave discussion of like, what kind of triggers do you have? What kind of values do you have? What kind of biases and prejudices do you have going into this? Because before, I think a lot of discussion around social justice was around the safe space, which is important because people need to feel safe when discussing these really difficult topics, but also moving towards that brave space, meaning that it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of strength and support from whatever community you're coming from to have these difficult conversations, especially around things like abortion, care, reproductive justice, and patient autonomy and dignity and compassion towards our patients. So are we actually having the space to have the discussions so that you can tell your colleague, you know, hey, let's check in today because this is going to be a really difficult clinic where we're discussing really difficult things and there's this one patient that I'm struggling with. Or, hey, let's have a values-based discussion before we start, you know, this research or this specialized clinic or go on this mission trip, etc. So, I think having that space to have those discussions and kind of breaking down all of the things that are happening internally, interpersonally, and then looking at the structures around us and, and being aware to how those affect your clinical decision making is an important step also. I don't know if we have time to get into this, but I know as part of your, your program, you go through vignettes. Is there a sort of a common vignette that you talk about and have maybe a common discussion around how to overcome the implicit bias in that specific case? One of the vignettes that a lot of participants relate to, I'll just read it out loud. You are an Asian American female intern who just admitted a 33-year-old black female Gravita 7 para 6 to the antepartum ward with preterm labor. At the end of your presentation, the white male chief resident states, make sure you get her to sign those bilateral tubal ligation papers before the end of the day. So this is something that our participants have related to quite frequently. And I remember this happening throughout my training that we are trained by our supervisors and our preceptors. You better make sure that she gets that tubal ligation um, because look at how many babies she's had before. And it is these off-the-cuff remarks that we know really acculturate trainees. So it's the jokes, it's the offhand remarks, it's the subtleties that really teach trainees how they should treat patients. And so this has happened to me multiple times where I've been sent in to make sure that uh, someone signs their bilateral tubal ligation papers so that because that's what is recommended to them from a supervisor who hasn't even who has never met the patient doesn't know her life experience doesn't know what she wants for her reproductive care. And so we have the same breakdown for every vignette 
that we, even though each vignette is completely different and the characters, we try to diversify so that the players in, in the vignettes are not stereotypical in of themselves and not repetitive. But we do repeat three questions with each vignette that we use because we think it allows a participant to go in a stepwise manner from just being a witness and a a bystander, because we know that there's this strong bystander effect that can immobilize you and and lead you to be powerless in a situation into an ally, which is someone who's aware of their power and privilege as a healthcare provider in this situation, and use that privilege to stand up in solidarity with whoever's being marginalized in the situation. So the three questions that we usually ask is, first, how do people feel when they read or hear this vignette? The next one is, what are the contexts of prejudice, power, and privilege that make this situation possible? The last one is, based on your personality and style, how would you address this situation? And so we always start with the first question of feelings, because once again, going back to that brave space of, it's really important to pause and just sit with whatever feelings and to name those feelings. So are you feeling anxious? Are you feeling scared? Are you feeling rushed? Are you angry? Are you enraged? Are you, you know, disgusted? Are you feeling awkward? Because a lot of times when this is happening in real life, it's milliseconds, you know, you have to respond before you even can sit and unpack everything that's happening in those situations. So we're giving participants that space and that pause button so that we can hopefully gain the skills, resources, and that emotional regulation that's needed to deal with it when you're in the situation in real life. So of course, in this vignette, a lot of people felt powerless, felt awkward, felt bad for the patient or felt angry for the patient. So a lot of feelings tend to come up. A lot of times we hear, heard this before, or we've been there, or this is very familiar. So just having that space to to talk about that, to normalize these feelings that we're having. The second question we ask about the different prejudice, power, and privilege that make this situation possible, that one is really important to really make the implicit biases or unconscious biases we have, we want to make them explicit because we want to make sure that we all call out that there is this hyper breeder, quote unquote, stereotype, and that we make sure to call out the power dynamic that is in place with medical providers compared to patients. There is a power dynamic that exists within medicine between a supervisor and a trainee role. So we want to make sure that we acknowledge these power dynamics because they play a huge part in how someone is able to act upon a bias that they are witnessing in front of them. And then our last question regarding uh, how would you address this situation based on your personality and style, we want to acknowledge that everyone has a different personality and a different style. And one way of addressing a situation wouldn't necessarily be the right way. Um, and that there are so many different ways to address this. Some people use humor. Some people may need to, you know, ask a friend for help, ask like someone they trust for help. Some people may need to gather more information before they can act on this situation. So that's something that we'd like to make sure to acknowledge that there isn't just one way to address a bias that is witnessed that could affect a patient. There's multiple ways to address it. So how can providers be an ally then in that situation? What can they do? 
That is a very big question. <laughs> so we should start out with the definition of allyship, and we we really like the definition from the Anti-Oppression Network. And allyship is an active, consistent, and arduous practice of unlearning and re-evaluating in which a person of privilege seeks to operate in solidarity with a marginalized group of people. Key points to this definition is that this is a practice and a process and not an identity. Often individuals who are very enthusiastic about their allyship, they think that this is, you know, this is an identity, that this is almost a badge that they can wear. But we want to remind listeners and ourselves that it's actually a practice and process of reflection, uh, self-evaluation, and it's a situation with a person who has privilege within a certain marginalization, they are operating in solidarity with that marginalized group of people. So they are working with that group of people that is marginalized. They aren't providing charity. They aren't furthering the power dynamic. And so in the example that we used in the vignette, and it's a little bit hard to just answer like how to be an ally in that situation without diving into like privilege and diving into like more the in my kind of reason for asking this is that part of what we want to do in our podcast is give people some kind of nitty-gritty tips like you talked about rebuilding trust or unpacking things in the exam room you know so how can people do that and I know that we're trying to squeeze this in now within like 10 minutes and it's a really big thing to do but yeah just kind of what are some as a listener what can they walk away from this and maybe put into practice one reference that Dr. St. Hilaire and I really like is um, Peggy McIntosh her classic paper it was called White Privilege and Male Privilege, A Personal Account of Coming to See Correspondences Through Work in Women's Studies. The other um, name of this is Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack, and that is very easy to Google. And there's a number of tips that we also feel like are helpful to learning to be an ally in situations such as this. Yeah, so many things that we can do to be a better ally is... First and foremost, educating ourselves. So in the curriculum, Dr. Wu and I give a lot of historical and current events that that relate um, and that feed into social stereotypes and unconscious biases that we may hold. So it's really important to actually do the work to read historical novels, to do your Google searches, to make sure that that education is not on the marginalized person themselves too, because I think a lot of times as allies, we are very enthusiastic and we may know someone who falls into that marginalized community. And we may say like, Dr. Wu, please teach me everything you know about X, Y, and Z based on whatever marginalized identity that she may have. And that takes a lot of physical and emotional labor. So making sure that education, the onus of education is placed on yourself and that you're not putting all the responsibility of getting educated on that marginalized group. 
Another thing that you can do to be a better ally is, of course, listen more and speak less. As people of privilege, we're used to being in the limelight. We're used to having the microphone passed to us. We're used to, you know, running the meetings and being the ones who set the agenda and who get to direct the conversation. And so making sure that we're giving actual space to marginalized communities to speak up and, you know, leaning on resources that actually focus on giving the voice and the microphone to those marginalized communities. And now more and more with media, it's hard to get to get access to that. Another thing that we talk about is calling out injustice and calling in those in your community. So a lot of folks have heard about calling out, which is basically pointing out injustices that are happening that no one else is bringing up. So if someone just says something straight racist or sexist or homophobic or Islamophobic and no one says anything, you as an ally should use your voice and speak up. But other times there's situations where you can call in those in your community. So calling in is taking a more restorative aspect and calling in folks in your community. So if one straight cisgender white male is talking to another straight cisgender white male about sexism and racism, they're calling in other people in their community. And it actually shows that you're more, sometimes you're more likely to hear and take it in if it's coming from someone who looks like you. So sometimes you just have to ask a question of understanding, like, hey, you're my colleague in in medicine and reproductive health. Can you explain to me why you said that? So you're calling in a colleague. You're not ostracizing them. You're not burning a bridge. You're giving an opportunity to have a conversation and hopefully bring them to the table and enlighten them a little bit and and have a difficult but much needed conversation that keeps that community intact. So that's one aspect that an ally can do. Another thing is just embrace emotions. We talked about emotional regulation, but especially with having these difficult conversations, a lot of times people take offense when they're called out and they feel like they're being turned into the quote unquote bad guy. But sometimes you have to be okay with being uncomfortable to be an ally because we all make mistakes. We all put our foot in our mouth. We all fall down, but we have to get back up. And sometimes that takes being okay with being called out yourself. And just acknowledging your privilege as healthcare providers, we need to all acknowledge that when we put on a white coat or when we have letters at the end of our name or just by our position, we have a place of power. And if you're a male working in women's health, you should be aware of your male privilege. If you're a white person working with people of color, you should be aware of your white privilege. So being okay with saying that and what it means based on your education of the historical and the current events that led to that privilege, I think is one of the first steps to having an open and honest conversation about these things. And this might be getting into, again, more than we can do. So I liked when you said the talk less, listen more. And so are there more things that like within the exam room that providers can do with their patients to address this or to kind of accommodate this? Yeah, I think a lot of times we've learned about cultural competency and I feel like now that that has a bad rep, but for a good reason, because in our healthcare training, we were taught, hey, if you learn, you know, these 10 things about this culture and you can check all those boxes, now you're culturally competent and you are ready to interact with patient X in the exam room. But Now we're moving more towards cultural humility and realizing that you can't just learn, you know, you can't just look at a PowerPoint or read a list or, you know, 
read even a textbook about a culture and say that you're, quote, competent in that culture. So I think going into each exam room as a clean slate and seeing each person as their individual human, fully incorporating all their different identities and being okay with not knowing, you know, what that person is going to bring to the table. I think that's really a positive direction and and being more humble and saying, can you tell me more about your values? Can you tell me more about what you're looking for? Can you tell me more about your experience with the healthcare system so that I can understand? So that asking for understanding is a more honest and open and compassionate way that gives the patient the dignity and the autonomy that they all deserve instead of thinking that, oh, I know everything there is to know about this culture. I'm going to come in and be their savior, which I think is the opposite of allyship. And that's more of a like a charity or a savior kind of aspect of looking down and, and helping and pitying, you know, certain marginalized groups. Like how can we look at them in an empowering way? And I think In the past, a lot of individuals misinterpreted cultural competency as what Dr. St. Hilaire was saying, as a list of attributes that everyone needs to learn about different groups. And this actually just came up in social media recently. In August, there was a nursing textbook that went viral that had a list of attributes for African-Americans for for Asian Americans, for Arab Americans, for European Americans. And it just shows that a lot of people didn't quite understand that the concept of cultural competency isn't further stereotyping different groups. It is, in fact, what we should be doing is unpacking these biases and trying to shed ourselves of these biases and learn how to interact with the person in front of us as an individual person, while acknowledging that they may come from a background that I might not necessarily be familiar with. And I think you see a theme between the way Dr. Wu and I are answering these questions and that there isn't a cut and dry, straightforward answer to any of these. And even in our vignettes there, we don't give you know, this isn't a multiple choice where A is right, B, C, and D is wrong. Like, And we, we are aware that as providers, we're all individual people with our own ideals and our own vo- uh, values and morals and, th- and judgments and things like that. So how do we move away from that and say, you know, I just need to be more open and honest with my patients. I just need to have more open-ended questions. I need to learn who they are as people. And unfortunately, our medical system doesn't give us a lot of time to do that. But if we can have this culture change and like put little steps into play with each of these uncomfortable situations, how can we prevent them in the future? Then hopefully as a healthcare center or as an educational program or just supporting your colleagues, how can we move more towards social justice and patient empowerment? So I think just summing up, I think, well, first of all, I think you both did a great job summarizing what we talked about today and giving providers some practical tips on how to assess their own implicit bias and also how to sort of check that bias and some great resources on how to become an ally. Do you have anything else to add before we we sum up? I know we could probably talk to you two doctors for eight hours. (laughs) But (laughs) do you have anything else that you would like to add before we 
end our um, podcast. Just overall lessons learned that we all have biases and it's okay. Just becoming aware of them is the first step and having having hopefully the support in the space to actually discuss it and unpack it will help you tremendously in your patient interactions. So I think before you can heal others, we need to start doing that internal healing and that deep, I guess, community healing that we all need from our, you know, ancestral trauma. And being compassionate, not just to ourselves, but others, patients and, and people who you witness have biases being compassionate to everyone, but also realizing that we can almost be radically compassionate in the way that we are can still act as allies within that compassion. And we can still be agents of change and be compassionate at the same time. Yeah, I think that's terrific. Dr. LaMercy and Dr. Wu have a have a, this great program and right now they're pretty limited in, in how many people can participate in this program but we're hoping to have a more uh, they're hoping to have a more broader outreach and so we will stay tuned for that that sounds great that sounds good do you want to wrap us up Nicole uh, yeah I would just like to say uh, from the bottom of our hearts thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual yeah, and reproductive health through communication and there are probably a bunch of other topics that maybe we could talk about more in the future if if time allows other than that we just really appreciate you both taking time out of your busy day just to, just to talk to you about something that is really so foundational to really every interaction not not just reproductive and sexual health but really something that people can use with anybody that they're talking to. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having us on your show. I appreciate the time and your great work. Oh, thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of WChat. Are you looking for ways to support us? Check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash WCH. And that's Patreon spelled P-A-T-R-E. E-O-N. And subscribe so that you can help us keep the show going while getting awesome extras. Want to be a part of the show? Go to our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com and send us an email. Otherwise, be sure to follow us on Twitter at woman underscore centered and Facebook. Facebook.